Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Kimberly, we're heading into the final week of arguments for the term. We have the praying coach case, the epically named Biden against Texas and a handful of criminal cases. And with the term's arguments just about wrapped up, we have a story out on the lawyers who argued this term. Kimberly, what do you have to report on that? Well, this is kind of um, some ongoing coverage that we've been doing over the last decade or so, looking at diversity in the court. Uh, Of course, several kinds of diversity are important, not just gender, race, and ethnicity, but backgrounds. Uh, But one of the measures that we've been tracking in particular is this kind of gender issue uh, among the attorneys who argue at the court. And so we've seen over the past decade or so that women argue anywhere between 12 and 20 percent of the cases at the Supreme Court. This year was a little bit higher, I guess. It was at 24 percent. Good job. You don't sound impressed. (laughs) 38 of 162 arguments were made by women, which I don't think anybody is really super proud about. And one of the things that we noticed um, in the last few years is that firms are really looking to kind of share the wealth, um, you know, not only to increase diversity in the Supreme Court bar, but, you know, it adds some benefit to their clients as well, they say, um, you know, to be able to offer different perspectives and, you know, just to have other attorneys who can provide a deep bench um, to work on these client matters. So, uh, looks like this term a few firms tried to focus um, on kind of sharing the wealth there were 14 firms who argued more than one case this term Uh, six sent just one attorney to argue all of their cases and all but one of those attorneys were white males the exception, of course, is Canon Shanmugan, who is often one of the only attorneys of color to argue at the Supreme Court at all. On the flip side of that, we have eight firms who sent more than one attorney. They had more than one case to argue, and they sent more than one attorney. And so we see firms like Wilmer Hale sent, had five arguments. They sent five different attorneys for all cases. And when we look at kind of the diversity um, within that group, we see that the number of women arguing shoots up to 36%, still not great, but better. Um, And actually, the only black attorney to argue at the Supreme Court came from that group of people, too. So um, some early indications that that could help um, with this diversity problem and that we may be seeing a trend, but definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, one thing that I was thinking about with that is how the court used to hear a lot more cases than it does these days. And so it's a smaller pool. I wonder if the court were to grant more cases, if there would be a change there, but maybe not if there weren't other changes being made, like what we're seeing starting to happen a bit. Yeah, for sure. And the reporting that you mentioned for that story, I talked to, you know, some people who have been in this space for a while, and and they definitely said that, you know, the court kind of constricting doctrine really is playing into this. Um, And so we see the number kind of ticking down from, I think when I first started covering the court a decade ago, we expected about 70 cases or 70 opinions and argued cases. Now we're going to get something closer to 60. So should we get into the sneak peek? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So 
Kimberly, we're kicking off with Kennedy against Bremerton School District. This is the one we previewed in our deep dive a couple weeks ago. Check out my interview with Bradley Gerard from Americans United for Separation of Church and State, if you haven't yet. But what's the sneak peek version? Sure. So this is a First Amendment case implicating both free speech and religion. So uh, this was brought by a high school football coach who was told not to pray in the locker room or on the 50-yard line before and after games. Uh, quick and dirty here is, you know, the question for the justices is whether the football coach was acting in his capacity as a government employee when he prayed or if he was acting as a private citizen. So under the court's case law, government employees' speech can typically be restricted much easier than private employees. Um, And for private employees, we really look to a balancing test of, you know, free speech rights for the employee and what the employer needs to keep a safe working environment for the government. Uh, The idea is that when you're speaking on behalf of the government, the government gets to decide what you say. So they can really uh, kind of claw back a lot of speech um, as not protected by the First Amendment. Now, the court, uh, that's going to be one issue for the court. Uh, The court could also look at whether the school had a valid establishment clause concern such that it could actually prohibit the coach from praying. So kind of two separate speech and religion um, issues kind of playing in the background here. The idea here is that the school argues it has to protect all students and employees free speech rights and so it's concerned about students feeling pressure to participate in prayer Um, and so longtime listeners may know that the establishment clause arguments at the supreme court have not done well that's an understatement Um, with the roberts court uh, really providing a more robust reading of the free exercise clause often at the expense of the establishment clause or what we know is separation of church and state. So if the court does talk about these religion cases, does get to that issue, I suspect this will continue on in that trend. Yeah, and the next case that's going to be argued on Monday is Nance against Ward. This one involves method of execution litigation, meaning not whether someone's going to be executed, but how. And the question here is whether state prisoners' claims should be raised in habeas corpus proceedings or in civil rights suits. It's about how to litigate these cases. And the defendant here is Michael Nance, who's facing execution in Georgia. The state's preferred method is lethal injection. Lance says the firing squad would be better, which maybe sounds weird, but is actually true. It's a whole other subject we could talk about for a while, but leave that to the side for now. So Nance raised that claim in a Section 1983 civil rights suit, but the 11th Circuit said habeas was the vehicle for that, and by the way, he would lose that way too. Nance argues that a ruling for the state will close the courthouse doors to constitutional claims and would also prolong method of execution litigation. I think the court might be interested in that second point, so I'm interested to see how that one develops at the argument. And then on Tuesday, Kimberly, we have the epic showdown in Biden against Texas. Reminds me of similar recent classics like Trump against New York. What's happening here? Sure. So I think in any of the other term, this would be kind of a blockbuster that we were um, all talking about for the last few months. Uh, in this term, it's just, you know, another big case to get to. So as you mentioned, this is an immigration case involving the migrant protection protocols, which we know better as the Remain in Mexico policy. Now, this policy has been in front of the justices before a couple times already, but this is the first time they're actually going to hear arguments. So uh, let's do a little background on 
on immigration law since, uh, you know, this is such a popular topic at the court. So federal law says immigrants seeking to come to the U.S. through procedures like asylum, they must be detained while they're waiting an immigration decision. But there are nowhere near enough resources provided by Congress to actually do that. So in the ABA preview um, that describes this case, it says in 2001, DHS processed 671,000 non-citizens along the Mexican border alone, and yet the United States only had the resources to detain about 34,000. So that's, you know, a significant difference. Um, So immigration law provides a couple of workarounds. First, it says that immigrants can be released into the U.S. while they're awaiting hearings if there's some indication that they will, in fact, uh, attend their immigration proceedings. And sometimes this is kind of derogatively referred to as catch and release, um, a policy that was much talked about under the Obama administration and by the Trump campaign. Another provision in immigration law says that people who arrive from Canada and Mexico can be returned to those countries while they are awaiting immigration procedures. So before 2019, the government used to send nationals from those countries back to their home countries while they were waiting. So if a Mexican citizen tries to come into the U.S., they'll send them back to Mexico while they wait. Under the Trump administration in 2019, so well into uh, that administration, they expanded that to include all non-citizens. didn't matter if you were from those countries. So anybody coming up from, say, like El Salvador uh, could be returned back to Mexico. Uh, not surprisingly, a lot that didn't turn out great for the people who were returned to Mexico. And, you know, they were met with harsh conditions, a lot of violence. And so when the Biden administration came in, it pretty quickly repealed, uh, repealed that policy. Or did it? No, it didn't. Because the courts, including the Supreme Court, said that the Biden administration hadn't followed the law when it wanted to repeal the remain in Mexico policy and it was required to keep it in place, which the Biden administration did. At the same time, they started a new process uh, to re-examine whether to repeal the migrant protection protocols, kind of addressing some of the questions that the courts had, and they came up to the same conclusion. No, we want to repeal this. Uh, Then the litigation happens. We have states coming in saying we want to keep this um, immigration policy in effect, and the Fifth Circuit says, yeah, the Biden administration has to keep it around. And it said, actually, that there's really no discretion for any administrations not to send people to Mexico and to Canada, which the government points out is pretty an odd interpretation, given that even the Trump administration didn't seem to think that that was the case, right? I mean, they expanded it to include these people. Uh, So, you know, that's going to be the major issue. There's also sort of this other element playing in the background Um, about another immigration policy, the DACA program, which listeners may remember the Supreme Court said the Trump administration also hadn't followed the law in order to be able to repeal that policy, which related to DREAMers. Um, There's some differences in the way the two administrations approached kind of how they reexamined those policies, Um, but I'm not sure if we're going to get any of that in the oral argument of that nuance We'll just have to see. And then we have, to close this out, we have two criminal cases. Shoup against Twyford. This is another habeas case, the second one that's going to be argued on Tuesday after the immigration case. This one also involves habeas. The question here is whether the All Writs Act lets federal courts order state prisoners to be transported for medical tests. You may be wondering, what does this have to do with actual legal issues and litigation in a criminal case? Let me explain. 
So Raymond Twyford is on Ohio's death row. He raised an ineffective assistance claim in his habeas petition. He said his lawyer failed to present evidence and conduct testing showing his neurological deficits. And to help prove that claim, Twyford wanted to get imaging done. So the question is whether a federal court has the power to order him transported for imaging in this situation. State officials argue that federal courts can only order transportation for testifying at trial. Otherwise, they say it's federal courts interfering with the states. The court granted review of the state's petition here. So Kimberly, I think there may be at least four justices receptive to the notion raised by the state. But as you say, we'll have to see. All right. Close this out on the week, Jordan. Sure. Oklahoma against Castro Huerta. This is another criminal case involving the interplay between state and federal systems, and in this case, tribal systems too. This one is a follow-on of sorts to the big McGirt ruling that people might remember from 2020. That was the 5-4 Gorsuch opinion where the court said the Creek Nation's reservations still stood. And that had big implications for criminal jurisdiction in the state because it meant the state couldn't prosecute Indians for crimes in quote-unquote Indian country. It's become really one of the top political issues in the state, so much so that officials asked the court to overturn McGirt right after it happened. You had Governor Stitt pointing to the fact that one of the justices in the majority in McGirt, Ginsburg, was replaced by Barrett, so explicitly asking the court to change its mind based on that new composition. The justices declined to do that, but they did grant review on what could be called a follow-up question to McGirt, and that's the question of states' authority to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians in Indian country. So even though the court isn't considering whether to straight up reverse McGirt, we still have similar dynamics at play here with the state claiming chaos because of McGirt, as it did ahead of the McGirt case, and the other side saying McGirt works, and it's the governor who's gumming up the works. So there's still a lot at stake in this follow-up case, which we'll be watching closely as well. Right. That would be a big chunk of the cases, um, would really take out a big chunk of those cases without having to overturn McGirt formally. So Yeah. Sort of the pattern we see of maybe not overturning decisions, but cutting back on them in some way after they're decided that kind of thing. All right. So that will be the final or, um, argument of the 2021 term. Yes, 2021, because the Supreme Court is weird, even though we're in 2022. Uh, and the court or the justices will be turning to really cranking out all of the opinions that they have waiting. I think we have uh, like something like two thirds of the opinions still yet to come out. Um, so this week will also be Justice Breyer's last time on the bench, uh, since, of course, he's stepping down, uh, and we'll get Justice Jackson. So I'm going to be listening for what kind of incredible hypos he might come up for his last week. He's already, uh, during the April sitting, uh, treated us to a couple of really good ones um, in a bankruptcy case last week. Suppose that, uh, you know, that some some uh, states or bankruptcy judge somewhere say, you know, we want to start court at 11. We want to start at 11. We think it works better that way. We're refreshed. Okay. So uh, I'll just like, Okay, that's no, great. No. Uh, and then a little more bonkers. He actually, in a preemption case, this makes total sense why it would come up in a preemption case, he was talking about federal workers who clean out muskrat nests. Nests. Muskrat nests. So when I read that, I think maybe there are several federal workers who are busy on a river at Hanford cleaning out muskrat nets, nests, you say? And they are nowhere near a structure where particular forms of waste are disposed of, expect, except by the muskrats, which have nothing to do with this. I don't even know if muskrats use nets. I don't, 
I don't even know what muskrats really are. Yeah, I don't know if Briar does either, it sounds like. <laughs> we'll see if he can outdo himself for the final week. Man, are you going to miss him? It's going to be weird not having him on the bench and seeing him, or I guess listening to him, depending on whether we're ever allowed back in the courtroom eventually. I'm going to say, Jordan, I suspect that we'll still hear from Justice Breyer, though, of course, it won't be on the bench. With that teaser, Kimberly has secret knowledge of Breyer's post-retirement plans. Maybe she'll reveal them on the next episode. Stay tuned. Dun, dun, dun. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On the Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.